Hello everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with me, Tom Salmon, the show that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's episode is the actor, stand-up comedian and storyteller Greg Lucy, the star of the award-winning short film Here and Beyond, directed by Colin West. We jumped into Greg's film festival experience, how he networks with the directors, actors and producers to land his next starring role, and what's it like playing the stepfather to one of Hollywood's most enigmatic leading men, Keanu Reeves. So, if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam or sitting behind a desk at work, I hope you enjoy my interview with Greg. So you've been on the short film festival circuit as the star of Here and Beyond. How's it been going so far? It's been going really well. Um, I couldn't make the trip down to Austin. I think that's where it premiered, Austin Otherworlds Film Festival. And mm-hmm. and Colin won for Best Script down there. And then I did make it to CineQuest in San Jose, um, a little bit north of L.A. And it's going again up to Montreal to another festival, Fantasia Festival, which is right. huge. And it's, it's almost two weeks worth of film. So... Oh, wow. um, I'm hoping to get there. I'm not sure. And then it picked up an award, I think, for cinematography. And in Miami, it picked up uh, art decoration, set design, and, mm-hmm. and an acting award as well. So it's on a roll, and I can't be happier for Colin and the team. They're, it's just wonderful to watch. So I just wondered, you know, what's it like representing a short film and traveling around to major festivals? And what kind of promotional duties are you kind of expected to perform on and off the clock? You know, it was. I think it was in Austin where a, a publicist actually, actually approached Colin, if I have the story right. And since then, there's been so many interviews and so many reviews, mm-hmm. which is just great. When I when I repped in Miami, you know, it's it's interesting. I was with a lot of filmmakers, not a lot of actors, a few actors down there. I asked Colin first, "Is there anything you need me to connect with?" Mm. And what's What's interesting about that festival, I had done a, a sci-fi festival that appeared, that was in Austin. It was a different film. Mm-hmm. And as Colin was sitting watching Here and Beyond play, he happened to be sitting next to a guy that had seen me in that other film from Miami. So it sort of, I sort of repped it that way in a sense. But um, I, I try to stay up with all the festivals and what's going on and try to get connected to the other filmmakers as well because it's a, it's a really great experience. This year, I believe you're in five short films in competition, which I'm now going to name check. So the uh-huh. first one being Here and Beyond, Sleepwalk, Last Dance, The Lost Sword, and Sell Your Dreams. And I just wondered, is there a community of actors that regularly get cast in these sort of big budget calling card short films? And do you guys hang out at the bar after screenings and kind of like talk shop? I do meet a lot of actors. You know, you go to a lot of different film festivals. Um, over time, and some of the festivals have different have a different attitude or different uh, uh, um, styles. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a different worth. Some of them, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, what's great is no matter what the festival is like, you can always find common ground with the actors and the filmmakers. And I'm still in touch, for instance, with people from 2014 at film festivals, and that's where. It's not really network. You know, you hear that term, it's who you know, but it's really who you work with that, mm. that takes you around to other festivals. And that's true of Colin as well. I think I, I made a list this morning. I've worked on eight projects with Colin, mm. and some of those are from people who knew Colin right. and or who met you at this festival or that festival. So I also really – one of the reasons I really like going to some of the festivals is because actors aren't gen- – aren't, generally included in post you know we don't Mm -hmm. see all the choice we don't see all the versions and everything and the only way we can get we can we can see or witness the fact that our performance is is playing to i don't playing to people who aren't in aren't in the industry Mm. for instance uh in here and beyond the screenings that um we had uh, where i was present people came up to me after and said thank you that was very moving and we wouldn't get the chance to sort of, if it's a comedy, sometimes you want to know if the jokes work, if your character resonates with the yeah. people who are actually paying tickets to see it. And that's amazing. And that's that's what I touch base with. In fact, um, I went to two festivals in New York City last month for a, uh, Not Here and Beyond. It was for a different film. But right. I met people I'd worked with here in L.A. I um, 
in touch with at least five or six of those filmmakers, another another gentleman from London, a great film, and it turns out. So, yeah, you do stay in touch because it just opens doors. And, and the one thing I, I enjoyed about this last year, a lot of people want to come. I work with a director from Spain and Portugal yeah. and London, and, and, and a lot of people want to come to L.A., which is, you understand, it's a, it's a big sort of mecca for many people. Mm. But at my age, I'll be 69 next uh, in August, and right. so I it op- it opens doors for me in Europe, which is is great because I know what the scene is here, and and it's it's what it is, and it's yeah. you know the hub. But it sure has opened doors for me um, that I didn't that I didn't foresee. A lot of the work that I get is very random. For instance, the gentleman from Spain I worked with. He, I happened to get a text after the uh, film I worked with, with him, and he said, "Hey, yeah. my friends might be calling." People lose actors from time to time, and I mm. filled in for this guy sleepwalk. And within two days, we're shooting, and oh, then wow. you don't get to. I didn't get to Google, you know, who yeah. these guys were really. But this uh, Felipe Melo is a director, writer. He's he's a he's, he's about forty years old. He's big at Comic Con. He's also a quite a well known jazz pianist over mm. in Chicago, and. Turns out the DP of that had seen a screening of another film that I'd done with Andres Gil, uh, the Spanish director. And sure enough, I got to go to Lisbon for the first screening. And within the last year, you never know where they're going to go. And within the last year, the film Sleepwalk picked up the Sofia Award, which is uh, Portugal's most honored uh, Mm. film award. And it's going to get an unimaginable 2,400 screenings over the next 12 over the next 12 years, yeah. they were, it's going to play with features at the ends of features all over Portugal. And it's actually going to a different fest um, in Spain coming up. So yeah. there's sort of the gift that keeps on giving once they get out there. And um, I wish I really wish I could afford to go to all festivals. <laughs> yeah, it, it manu- they maneuver in ways that you just don't expect, which is great. And what's awesome to me as the old guy, I work with a lot of younger filmmakers, I think, Many of them are 30 or some mm. under that. But it's nice to watch within three or four years their climb here in L.A. You know, mm. it's like sort of a pinball machine in, in some respects. But the, I had met Colin before he had gone to school. Uh, he had been to undergrad, I think. Yeah. And watching him just progress in the last four or five years, uh, along with these other directors, they just have this bright future that they're planning, and mm. and I I sort of have a little grandfather role in that, I guess. I watch you growing as well. You know, yeah. I get a out of watching young folks who are I say young folks who are on a path. Yeah, you know, and it's not an easy path filmmaking. Right. It's, it's, it's very competitive. And once what I love is the camaraderie of the team. So just following on from that question, I mean, you've carved out like a real niche as a well-respected and prolific character actor. I mean, you've got over seventy credits. I just wondered about like the um, festival's strict rules on screenings and kind of the limited distribution for most short films receive, um, obviously not sort of sleepwalk in that regard because it's getting a lot of sort of screenings. So, yeah. I mean, you did speak about it briefly, but what for you as an actor is the most rewarding part of working on a short film for you? Here's the way I look at it. It's a worthy struggle to fight for five or 10 or 20 lines on a TV show. That's, I understand it. I get that. Mm. But in short films... I'm able to play parts that I might never get. I'm, I play leads. I play hitmen. I play um, guys with dementia. I play all these different characters. Instead of having a little, what might be a bit part, which are great, I would take them up in a heartbeat. Mm. People call me and say, I've got something for you. I've written something for you, Greg. And that keeps my that keeps me going. So all of the other roles that I get or parts that I might audition for yeah. it's awesome i've worked with half a dozen directors between three and six times each they'll call and right. say i got something for you and that's very very rewarding and i don't think i'm alone in that i think um in la there's well i all over the world I, there's so many actors and mm. when you have people saying hey can you do this can you be in this that's a huge compliment but yeah. also a huge opportunity um, and these can lead to features as well. I, I've done a few features, Revelator, which was really interesting, and yeah. 
and coming up survival skills and um, blood pup. These are both, again, from attachments. Uh, they came from Collins projects. I was just thinking in terms of the short films that you've sent me, they're working at a really, really sort of like high level. And, and for me, it's always like a bit of a shame because festivals are very strict in terms of sort of sharing that online with people. Um, so I don't think maybe in terms of the work getting out there and people seeing it as much as say like sort of features or TV work, it's it's this sort of, it's this sort of strange, almost sort of kind of like hermetically sort of like sealed thing that things sort of escape from. That's why your work is important to bring this out as well. There was also... Um... There are also different venues now for shorts. It's so rare to get for shorts to get seen. Um, I think there's something called Shorts TV. There's, um, I think you can get on certain Amazon and Prime Time, mm-hmm. um, Prime stations. But one gentleman I knew who I'm still friends with, filmmaker from we met in Providence like five years ago. But mm-hmm. he managed to get his on an airline, which right. is kind of interesting. Be kind of great if you were if that could be happening more this one short i did about five years ago a monster movie when i first moved to la you know i went to the can short corner which is great and and that's where it's a pretty big marketplace for film Mm -hmm. they're not in competition but they ended up it was exciting because the director simon hung he emailed five of us who were in it and said we got the money for a feature we got an investor and so keep february open and then february comes along and then it it's turns out that investor wanted to use other actors so you face that too and Mm. filmmakers face that um because in these short versions for instance if if they move on to do a feature you never quite know you Mm. know you might i might be included i might not it's going to be another team that takes over quite possibly so i'm trying you try to appreciate exactly what you've got and Mm. um i think the word is manage your expectations because sometimes you go oh uh, but you have to be, you have to be kind of, mm, you have to take, uh, can't get too excited about stuff until it actually happens. Yeah. So just jumping back to the first time that you worked with Colin, because I'd just like to sort of trace your uh, sure. working relationship. So when, when did you, where did you actually meet Colin? What project were you working on? I met Colin at, um, I think it was five or six years ago, um, American Film Institute. I'm not sure if you're, it's uh, one of the conservatories here and it's quite well known. And they have, I was acting and I auditioned for a film called Still Life. And this particular school, their first year films, the two years, the school owns them in, in, in meaning that if they're used as uh, practice to learn mm-hmm. uh, with teams at schools, so you can use any music you want so you don't have to get rights because nobody's going to see them except people in the school. Right. They're, they're not going to be out for general public. So that frees students up to not have to deal with that expense or that whatever, uh, that complication. So it was a film that was supposed to be based, which it was based on a true story loosely. It was a, a film about a gentleman who, it's interesting, he had been HIV positive for years back in the 70s as a right. gay man but he never got sick and they doctors used this gentleman for research to find out what kept him going hmm. but this man was dealing with issues of having lost all of his friends right. and at, at the age of 60-ish or 65 he was lamenting he felt tremendous survivor guilt in real life he he ended up taking his own life and so oh, this was, yes, this was a take on that. And so here was, it was a sensitive issue. And it was wonderful to tell this gentleman's story. But here was Colin. And he was, he had volunteered to work on this set, as many people do to get experience. But, you know, this was before he went to USC. Yeah. And I remember him specifically, he was, um, he was sort of my assistant in the sense that he was preparing my um, shirt that I would wear and this kind of thing. And, right. and he was the nicest guy in the world. He was say. When you're on a set, of course, it, I guess it goes without saying that the sensitivity of the people around you are huge. And he was just there for me. And so the film, it was kept in-house. And, you know, I uh, it was private links. And obviously, it's not going to be released to the public. But mm. it went so well. Half a dozen other students, you know, word gets out. And then they you get other work through that work. But right. that's how Colin. And then I think it was 
maybe six or eight months ago, or uh, later, six or eight yeah. months later, that he called me and said, hey, I got this thing. Are you interested? And it was the immortal jellyfish. I don't know if you that one. I think I've it's seen the trailer a, to that one on his, um, yes. his Vimeo. Yeah. Yes. And Tina Matthews, his um, partner, is the art director. And she's she's just brilliant. And Colin, you can tell, I think, well, Colin's first degree was art. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. he went into film. And you can sure tell because it's um, – and then after that, I did another short with him, uh, two other shorts. And I – you know, I even – I write as well. And I even thought this is the guy that I would trust with, you know, my stuff. And if we have a good rapport. Yeah. So I've even given him my writing. And I really appreciate the comments and the ideas about possibly pursuing something that that I'm developing. Calls are great when they come in mm. and you get jobs. But – the older you get, I got a lot of stuff in drawers, and I hadn't done live. I had done mostly live theater until I moved down here, yeah. and it was mostly film. Well, it's been film since. So I, I started to think, okay, the older I get, how many roles are there going to be? For, you know. Yeah, so I started to go yeah. back to performing live again, and it's very um, rewarding. I'm getting my own my own stuff out there. I started doing some storytelling, but what's really nice is knowing now that I do – filmmakers i can go to them and say look are you interested in maybe doing this project or that yeah. and sort of turn it around a little bit and because i not being a filmmaker is you know you get on a set and it's like all these choices that they have to make it's just mm. i think i could that's a whole different ball game and if i can if i can handle my choice as an actor that that works for me yeah. but all these other choices have to be made it, it's a wonder that it gets done at all and then what i love is the camaraderie of the team Mm. and so colin puts together a team that that's unbeatable every time so so when i interviewed colin on the podcast he talked about how much he loved your performance and how playing the role of mac the scientist with dementia was a role that was particularly close to you as an actor and i just wondered why was that you know it was i think i realized it as i was doing it because i play um for instance, in uh, a couple of the other movies, I play a hitman. I play a cult leader. Mm-hmm. Since I've never played a cult leader and I've never <laughs> been a hitman, you have to you have to dig in. You have to use different tools and, yeah. and, and um, your imagination in a bit of a different way. But what I liked about this is much more close. Odd anecdote. For instance, as you get older, I was in Lisbon for the first time a month ago, or a year ago, okay. and. I remember I got lost a few times. You know, you just go walking in the city. And there were a couple of times where I sort of panicked. In this, right. I'm like, wait a minute. I think I know where I am. And when you get to my age, it's like, okay, did I just forget? Or is this the onset of something? That right. I, sure. I so I get to this cab driver. I said, look, I think I'm really close. But I'm not sure. This is where I'm going. Sure enough, I was two blocks away. But it's that moment. And I think you don't have to be 69 to realize this, but you mm. think something might be going wrong and you realize, no, 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 it's not. You're just a little lost. Mm. Um, and when I got, when I read the script, it was, I did start researching the sort of textbook Alzheimer's, that kind of stuff. But I realized, and after I talked with Colin, it's not um, Mac, the character isn't, it's not a textbook case of dementia. It's just the fact that his his mind is starting to deteriorate and then where does it go and and what's interesting when people have come up after it's caretakers who are who are most are so appreciative because if you don't have a sense of humor about any you know you lose your sense of humor sometimes of course Mm but i've been a caretaker as well to people and you have to find the um there's funny moments that are bound to occur and so what i thank colin for as well, I do some voiceover work and that sort of thing, and, and he kept yeah. me very he kept me very real. There were a couple of scenes where my voice would start going into that. Hi, how are you? You know, thank goodness, or thank thank Colin mm-hmm. for saying, you know, okay, let's pull it back, let's make it, and and absolutely, and it's not the first time that's happened on a set because I I, I sometimes can go to that theater voice, right, which. Yeah, yeah. She was very uh, – and when I saw it, I'm like, this is awesome. Uh, and there were a couple of scenes that I just was unsure of. 
he talked me through them. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's where age has nothing to do with directing and, and acting. And if you, I've met such sensitive directors that can guide an actor through. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. I've met 22-year-olds. I've met 60-year-olds, which is wonderful about that link between artists. Age doesn't have – it's just the connection, yeah. you know, of those people involved and, and how how they're relating. And, and I think the reason we work well together is we've worked together before, and I think we've built a, you know, a sort of relationship. But – it was closer to me because I am 69 next year yeah. and it may get closer. And I just kind of like wondered going from, you, know, you talked about theatre voice, going from like projecting to an auditorium of, you know, potentially thousands of people. And then obviously going to having a microphone that's only just a few inches above your head that you then have to, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you have to, uh, you know, you have to sort of get the same emo- emotion or intensity across, but in an, uh, obviously not, um, what am I saying? Not, not with not as much volume, should we say? Was there anything you particularly sort of studied? Was there sort of like Meisner? Do you do sort of like method acting? It gets confusing because there are so many different theories, acting theories, whether it's Meisner, Stanislavski, whatever. I think I started with with my own sort of instinct goes to Stanislavski, but mm-hmm. but it, it only like I said, if if you're playing a hitman, that might not work for you. Mm-hmm. You have to switch over to Meisner because you use your, your imagination. But I'm not an expert on all those all of the acting teachers' methods. And there was a wonderful actress years ago in a talk show here in the States. I was, I don't know, I was really young in my 20s, I guess. But she said all of these, and, and, and she helped clarify it for me. She said all of these techniques exist, all of these teachers. If nothing's coming to you from instinct, hmm. you have tools to pull from. And I think that was valuable to me because it's always... Rather than applying that specific method, because I think specific methods from specific teachers may not work, yeah, in a, or, or whether it's teachers, certain whatever ways to study or perspectives on it, it may not work. So, and plus, the actor you're working with uh, opposite you or actors may have a completely different. It must be mm. so hard for a director to realize, okay, these people all have different perspectives on how to proceed. How are we going to, and what, what, I, what I have learned so much, I used to think when I walked into an audition, it was always my fault if it didn't work out. Right. But there are actually books written and, about how to direct actors, how to get more out of your actor, how to, how to actually, and so I'm not, I can sort of identify as well when I go in, it's like, oh, and maybe steer it towards a different, for instance, in one of these short films that I, uh, The Lost Sword, and I had worked with him, and we developed a great way to work, which is the as if. They're so brilliant. It's like, okay, if they're not getting exactly what they think they might want from an actor, mm-hmm. if you say, um, okay, can you act as if you're speaking to a kindergarten class? Can you act as if it's raining outside and you don't have an umbrella? Can you, mm-hmm. whatever the image, and it can jumpstart somebody so different directors will work many different ways but if you discover a way that you can you get on a set and so many people there's five or six different languages as well yeah so to negotiate you have to everybody it's this negotiating team each set requires something different and you know other actors who decide to give you notes and stuff like that you're going well now (laughs) you know how do we um manage to get past that that's because quite delicate, isn't it? It's a big no-no. You shouldn't be giving you huge, actors giving each other notes. Huge, huge. I think in theater, I'm. I think in equity theater, union theater, it's against the rules for actors to get together to run lines, even run lines without oh, wow. the director. Which I can sort of understand because you get who's going to go off and try to. And I've been in the situations where, in my cases, they've mostly been younger people. But I'm thinking maybe they don't have a theater background. You just mm. don't know. But the idea of, um, could you do this? It's generally to make them look better or mm. instead of being in the moment with you and see what, you know, they, yeah. it's a trust thing uh, to a certain extent. But yeah, I'm wondering as a filmmaker, have you, uh, no, I guess you're interviewing me. So I should. <laughs> no, it's fine. I, you can ask me questions. What do you do? What do you do personally as a director or professionally as a director if 
if you run into that situation or if you run do you use any techniques for if an actor isn't giving you not that they wouldn't give you something immediately you know if they could but if something's not if you need something different do you have a technique I've only made a few short films, so I haven't. I haven't personally run into that that sort of like situation because I don't think I was ever really working up at high enough sort of like level in order to be poking and prodding my actors. But what I have heard stories of director of the Exorcist. He would offset. He would um, throw bricks into bins and kick them off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just to scare the actors and I think another famous story was Oliver Stone went up to Michael Douglas I think and every day on um, Wall Street and, and say like oh they're thinking about firing you they're thinking about firing you just gotcha. so he'd be on edge all the time what do you do do you do do you throw bricks see that's the thing I think you have to be those Oscar winning level filmmakers because <laughs> I think there's it's like with anything if you're operating at the very highest highest of levels and there yes. is a, and there should be a lot of trust there you can kind of get away with that because you're seen as a sort of auteur, this creative entity, and, and you must you must get that shot, you must get that sort of scene by all means. You know, I'm not against that. It, as long as it's not, well, you know, it's not some kind of torture or strangeness mm. in that regard because time is of the essence, things go mm. wrong, things go bad, and it's. I just hope that at the end of that, everybody's friends. Um, I can't imagine, I, you know, at auditions, it's, it's interesting, I go to a lot of schools for auditions and sometimes I'll get this a lot. I don't know if women actors or actresses get this, but do you know when Matthew McConaughey did this or do you know Mm. when Edward and and after a while it gets, you know, I I know what they're, I know what they're trying to do, but after a while, well, can you get them for the part? You know, it's not what can you do, but there's this phrase, one of these memes came up over Facebook. Oscar Wilde said this phrase, which is, um, I can only be me. Everyone else is taken. <laughs> yeah. That's, I actually threw that out a couple of times, knowing I was not going to get a, I said it very charmingly. Yeah. But it's, do you remember when Matthew, I'm like, mm, well, I can only be me. I'm not suggesting everybody, everybody do that. But sometimes uh, the audition process is quite different because you get two pages of script. Yeah. In an, an, an unfinished script. And so you can only, um, I don't know, you can only give, part of what they're after because you only have a bit of information so this is a bit tangential so i have a friend who works as an actor in la and i have run late at night from being the uk and him in la running lines with him so i've seen Uh i've seen yeah i've seen a variety of different scripts sometimes you get the scent the whole one sometimes it's just a few sides um and then sometimes you just get these huge x's through all these other sort of scenes and stuff and then (laughs) it's just a few lines at the bottom auditioning is a very it's a very weird process because it's not the job i'm not a textbook auditioner and i don't know what that i'm not exact i remember oh the monster movie i had i had all kinds of surprises for them and i got the role i think because of it um i'm trying to think of uh, oh there was one where i had to uh, it says the character he's climbing a mountain he goes off and he climbs a mountain and so um, there was a big door frame. You know, it was an old yeah. building. There was a door frame. And I started yeah. climbing the door frame until I was up on the – just to show them that I would climb. Yeah. Um, or if there's a – I'm yelling at a, a dead body or I don't know, whatever they require. Yeah. I, if I pull out all the stops, the thing is when they work, it's awesome. And when they don't, I remember calling a friend of mine. I went out – this was a, an addition in a hotel lobby, which is kind of – I think it's the only one I've ever been to, and I, I'm sort of suspicious of it. I took, I have a couple of monologues from way back when that, that I, Chekhov monologues, they can just be molded and, and into anybody saying these wonderful lines. And I used them, and I, I went a little crazy because they had to play a threatening guy, and I left, and I called my friend in Florida. I said, what am I doing? I, I just, and then I got, a, I got the part. So, and I think for actors, it's one thing to walk in and or get a part and say, I got something for you, but a couple months ago, I was very green. Nobody had met me. Nobody had seen me at these. At these, um, nobody knew what I did. It, you're walking in cold. Yeah. And and so uh, I realized, oh, they don't know me. So you know, I have to. I have to do it all from. You have to do it all from scratch. Anyway. Yeah. Um, and the script. It was interesting. The script. The two pages I got. I was convinced that I shot the guy at the end of those two pages. Right. But turns out it wasn't that way. It was. <laughs> 
my wife comes in and shoots him. And there's no way I could have known that. Right. Um, sometimes, uh, and I have been guilty of sort of, well, I always prepare, hmm. but it's that attitude of, look, they don't know you. They don't know what you've done. And um, plus, and, and I, you've probably been part of it too. You, I respect everybody's job, but sometimes you see that and you're going, wow, they edited it like that. That's mm-hmm. interesting. It turns into a, I think Colin mentioned too, that the film grew so much in the editing process and so many films do that because yeah. you look at what you've got and you go, okay, I'm trying to tell this story. I've got all this footage. In fact, Sleepwalk, I remember we had the last scene in that. I was going to be here in the States. Yeah. They were going back to Portugal. And so it was practical. There's a very end scene that's critical for my character and, and for the movie. Yeah. They, sh- they shot six alternatives. Right. They shot six different ways of doing it, and which I realized later, because I saw the first cut of it, and it was one choice, and mm. then after I showed it, I was very grateful. They, they shared versions with me, which is really wonderful. Mm. And then when they changed it, I'm like, okay, they changed it. Um, and part of me went, wait a minute, I saw that first one, but look where it's gone. So, and, and I think it's important for filmmakers and writers. I've run into a lot of people who get pretty protective about their material, but you have to show it to other people because what, what you think is clear. I haven't, I haven't, as an actor, I haven't been living it for two years or Mm. six years, years. So you can't expect us to understand your script, even though you think it's perfectly clear. That's the hardest thing for me how, uh, to imagine how other screen. I'm not a screenwriter. I've, I, I do fiction, but for instance, yeah. if you handed me different scripts, I would be. It would be harder for me to analyze them than many people who are who can do it overnight or instantly. Because I'm not. Uh, I, I have to really study it to analyze that script. But right. that's why schools exist, I guess. You don't have to go to school for it, but. That's why it's important because I run into a couple of people who just, they won't, they won't go through that process. And I'm guessing it's painful, but, and then you have to narrow it back and go, okay, they all said this. I still believe it's going to be this. And so it tests, it tests you. I just wanted to know when you got bitten by the acting bug and kind Uh, of how you've navigated your acting career so far. I didn't know really what, I was going to get a teaching degree in English, which is fine, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was in college. I was went to a very small college, about a thousand students, and some friends of mine were auditioning for plays, and I thought, gee, I, and I, I was writing fiction, but I was really shy. I was so introverted. I don't know. I had trouble finding roommates, and somebody would say, yeah, I'll be your roommate, because I was just so introverted. For what This was during... This was 68, 69, okay. 70, Vietnam, and you had to stay in school. And and uh, I was actually up for the, you talk about the political end of things. I, w- I was up for that first draft of the lottery, and it's a question Oof. about conscientious objection, go to yeah. Canada, fight Vietnam. And these were, these were really, these were really the serious issues of the day. And mm. then, so anyway, I had gone to this play. A friend of mine had auditioned. I said, well, and I was shaking. I was, my legs were, I could not stop my legs from shaking out in the, I didn't get the part. And I auditioned another time and I didn't right. get the part. And then the third time they were doing a, a Per Gint, which is a huge epic production by Ibsen. The, the director, James Young, he was smart. He said, because no one actor could have handled all Four hour, three hours. They pared it down wow. to three hours. So he split it up into the first hour would be the pair is the young man, the lead character, and then the pair is the middle-aged man, and then right. pair is the old man. And so I auditioned for the young man and got the old man. So that shows you, <laughs> that shows you what my audition quality was. But here's this is what was interesting to me, and it went really well. It's sort of like, I'm guessing... If you, oh man, I don't mean to go with this metaphor, but whenever you get addicted to something, or whenever something's good the first time, you want to do it again. And it also gave me what I think is a direction in life because I didn't know, well, in a sense, I didn't know what I want. I still have sort of an aimless quality going on. But for that three hours, I knew exactly where I was supposed to be and Mm -hmm. what I was supposed to do. And so my thing was, all right, I don't know what I want to do with my life yet, but just keep getting in plays. And for that hour, if it's a one act, I knew exactly where I was supposed to be. And I know. So that was, that was a kind of, um, 
the one interesting thing too is I should go back to doing live theater play that first one I, I have bad eyesight you know I've always since I was six I can't see anything far I can't see far away right. I didn't wear my glasses it was a small theater and so everyone was there was a big crowd there but they were faceless nothing no one I could identify yeah. which really freed me up I, it was more like Greg's doing it alone in his apartment <laughs> I did run into the wall at one point and sort of smashed my head, but I got, <laughs> I went back. Um, and after that, it was sort of, um, I had thought about going to LA or thought about New York, but that scared yeah. me a little. I'm from Chicago originally. So, oh, okay. so um, my dad had died at my last year of college and I went back to be with my mom for a while, but I didn't get to either coast because I was a little bit scared. It was, um, but Chicago had a great theater scene so I just started auditioning around and sure enough, learning by doing and taking an occasional class, but more learning by doing was pretty, and it, just to give you an idea of the time, well, it was early 70s and David Mamet was in Chicago just, just yeah. getting started and uh, John Malkovich had shotgun players, not shotgun players. Is it Steppenwolf with their guys yes, and John Malkovich and Laurie Metcalf? What happened was I got involved at the age of 23 in a repertory company that was just starting out. And so for two or three years, we were I, we were just down the street from Steppenwolf. I've never worked there. But what's interesting is those people would come to our shows. We'd go right. to theirs. There was a kind of community around us. And then Stuart Gordon, who was the organic theater, it was a hot theater town. And so I really got a – that was where I – that's where I just kept auditioning. And I was getting in Shakespeare parts or – we, what we did at the rep company, yeah. we had a choreographer as well. So that was very cool. So I was heavily involved in movement and dance. We did some Giroudou. We did, I think, like I said, check off. And yeah. what's interesting is to, to have had that. That's my background. And so I, when I was 30, I was in a bit of a rut. I, I actually had done two years of a touring company for schools, which is huge education because we had 12 different shows for mm. six-year-olds. Also, all the way up to college, uh, high school seniors. Yeah. So we had a dozen shows. We'd have Chekhov One X, or we'd have the Grime Stoppers. And kids will be so honest, and they are they are the most honest audience. If it's funny, they'll laugh, and yeah. if it's not, they're not going to laugh. And I pull from that a lot. Right. When you find, you know, you're on a set, you're going. For instance, in Collins, I was telling this to a friend. In Collins' film. He's a science teacher, and he had the sort of a Bolnai science show. And when we did all that green screen stuff about, you know, time running out, it was awesome because I reached right back in to do it for the kids. That's what the kids' show was. So you build on all these past experiences that somehow it's like, wow, that – so it became mm. a sort of instant grab. Oh, and so when I was 30 – I wasn't, I was still in Chicago and I'd never left and I thought I was in a bit of a rut. So I ended up moving to um, San Francisco and that's when the comedy scene was really, uh, really a big deal and I wasn't getting cast in stuff. So I thought, okay, I'll give stand-up comedy a try. And being the scaredest person in the world, I created a scared comic. Right, okay, yeah. Which worked for me and... um total nerd and so he's the kind of guy who would even if somebody punched him in the arm he'd like the attention you know he said oh somebody's paying attention to me so yeah. he could do no wrong when i first went out i thought okay what if i forget my lines i actually was so naive i thought i had to have a new routine every time but i created it was a in san francisco that there was a mayoral election coming up so my gimmick what was to present myself with a clipboard and glasses and say, look, I need help with the application because I want to run for mayor. Yeah. I had these ridiculous true or false questions, just the stupidest stuff. So if there were a couple people in the back with a beer, they would say something, you know, or mm. that, it, that's, you can depend on sort of, I was just trying to get reaction instantly. Right. Just like true or false and these ridiculous questions. True. Thank you. And so that moved me forward. And I was actually getting some paying gigs in the first six months. I also knew it was a long drive home alone and i'm like mm -hmm. okay this is great i'm writing material and at the time i had a coach he was handing out flyers and uh, i took one and he says you know you got to go up as yourself greg and i said ah, <laughs> i don't think so i like the character 
And what yeah. happened was this guy, Rich Baker, had an audition. And he said, look, I'm doing this show. And, and I auditioned for it. Mm-hmm. And I ended up getting to play that nerd character for four years. That, that, it yeah. was called Bar None. And it lasted for four years. And the first half was scripted, loosely scripted. And then the second half was all improvisation. So it gave me, it gave me a, a venue to just play that character for the longest time, which worked for me. I did a lot of other community theater there, but I got kind of known as that comedy guy. And then when I moved to L.A., what was interesting is because I didn't bring that history with me, I played half a dozen hitmen, Tom. So, <laughs> seriously, I know. I was like, yeah. oh, what? I'm getting the heavies now. That's fun. But I may, oh my God, I always keep that stand-up comedy in my back pocket. I started doing some storytelling and, and I may go back. Oh, I actually went up as myself. Well, I'm creating a solo show. Right. Uh, but what's interesting now, because of the time, if I were to create a show, a solo show, it would cost quite a bit to put on for two or three months and then it would be over. That's why I, I am thinking more of doing short film mm. stuff. Because it, now you can, you can get it out there quicker in a lot yeah. of ways, less expensive. Now, what do you think of um, when I was a kid, if I was watching television in high school, I would see, let's say, a lead actor in something, movie, he's doing a commercial or she. And it's like, oh, wow, they must have, their career must be gone because they now have to do commercials. They have, they're branding themselves. But now what's happened is the exact opposite. It's yeah. been flipped. It's like you try to quote-unquote brand yourself by the time you're 20 yeah or, yeah, yeah. or younger. and it's a huge a huge um difference and so it's not something that's going to change and then i have some really diehard filmmaker friends who will only do film you have people who it opens up the world to be able to to show what they do with people but there's the other theories that by opening it up that way how is it being curated and, and yeah. what is and so it becomes, as you know, too, talent may not be the thing that gets you the agent or this, that, or the other. Mm. It's how many likes you've got, which is interesting for me. I just did this video about a month ago. and But to watch the likes and the – it's a world that I wasn't young with. So I have a different uh, take on it. It's like the revolution came with the internet because yeah. I, I remember not having the cell phone, not having the computer, not having, and watching it happen – is very different than it being part of your life. Yeah. I think in terms of how things sort of change, people want, not always, but it's sort of this idea of like baked in sort of advertisement into sort of like content. It's also in terms of festivals too. It's Mm. all about getting to that next level. Mm. And everyone is in a different orbit um, in LA. And well, I'm sure it's that way everywhere. But when you start comparing yourself to this, that or the other, that's when it gets kind of murky like you've got a friend or a, an acquaintance because everybody is approaching it differently. So you can only compare to a certain extent. Mm. And it's interesting. I was listening to a panel discussion, a couple of filmmakers not long ago. And, and one was, I don't know, I guess she had, I would call more of the American view. She said, well, when you're making something, a movie, mm. you may have to compromise if you're going to get that chance to make the second movie. Yeah. But there was, gentleman from spain who i happen to know is a director as well yeah. who was up on a panel discussion saying well and he said it charmingly and but he said maybe you should maybe you don't have to do that um it's just that your choice is to do that to make the extra money or to make get the next job let's put yeah. it that way but he saw it more of a you don't have to compromise that way if in your heart you have you know you want to move forward without the compromise I don't know if I'm making sense, but no, we talked. I mean, yeah. yeah, we talked about the difference between the American version of, or the American, um, not the only one, but one of the American ways of making movies, which is that compromise, climb, climb, climb. Yeah, I'm so glad that we had the discussion with the director from Spain and the director from Lisbon that it's different in Europe. Mm. They have there's a different mentality. In fact, I. At the Indie Fest in um, New York City, I, I saw a film, he's British, uh, Pablo Barons. He, he did Adrift in, so- in Soho, which is an amazing mm. film. Yeah. And I actually 
spoke with him a little bit. He wasn't there, but I, I chased after his representative, and so I ended up talking to him, and yeah. and that opened my eyes a little bit. And then there's this other gentleman, Martin Richards, who was in the same festival in Miami. He wrote, he, he did a great movie called The Bomb, which is running around at festivals. So we shared too. And also Tom Conlon, I should mention his name. I don't know if you know him. He's a great British actor. And I worked with him in um, The Lost Sword. Mm -hmm. This whole last year, I've spent so much time talking with about the difference between European filmmaking and now I don't I don't know I'm sure more intelligent people are having this discussion in other rooms in terms of like the choice of like going I guess like you doing the more commercial thing or doing the more sort of like artistic endeavor I think it's just very based on sort of personality because like two very specific extremes you could say you know someone like Michael Bay he's very sort of like commercially driven suits his personality what you think of him sort of personally or sort of professionally he, he's found his niche, he's found his audience, and he does it very sort of proficiently. And then I guess you take the other really, really sort of, you know, further sort of extreme of that of somebody who's making like half a million dollars sort of indie, or not even like um, Sean Baker, actually, that's a better example of like, he does sort of tangerine shoots at an iPhone. It just depends what your personality is, because you could, I couldn't imagine Michael Bay making Tangerine, and I couldn't m- imagine Sean Baker making a Transformers movie, but I'm sure if you're uh, offered Sean Baker enough money, he might consider it. Indie people or artistic people will get sort of folded into the system more in a way. They're, they're more sort of like scooped and picked up. I think at a certain level, very low budget, it's very, very hard to be supremely commercial, working at very low ends of the spectrum as well, because there just isn't that much resource to make something that is. I'm just glad they all exist because Mm. I I can't, if I were offered any part in any of those, I'd say, you bet, yes, let's do it. You've just sort of redefined it in a better way for me to think about all the different options about everybody's in that different orbit and the, Mm. the, the stories, in fact, couple of days ago i went on google and, and it was the uh the 10 most the biggest failure movies the mm, biggest the biggest 50, bombs and then you get this other list of um the ones that were the those that shot for very little money and yet made a whole bunch of money you're right it's what is in the heart of every one of those different filmmakers mm. and and where how, how they're gonna approach what they do and the resources they have mm. and we all know that sometimes you get a lot of money and it doesn't mean it's going to be a better movie. Mm. You know, it brings other choices. Well, I think just on the other end, like sometimes you're given a lot of money and working an incredibly commercial scale. Sometimes you can come up with something that's just like a really wonderful, emotionally yes. resident film. And I was just thinking my example of that most recently would be like Avengers Endgame. That, that particular film, in terms of the grandest, most amount of money you could possibly have and the biggest sort of distribution and promotion for something... Um, the Russo brothers did craft, I think, a very emotionally touching, engaging movie with all the sort of special effects. So I guess, like, I think sometimes blockbuster filmmaking or populist filmmaking gets this sort of rap that isn't sort of artistic or can't right. be sort of a, a emotionally sort of effective as, say, more art house. I mean, and more often than not, that tends to be the case. But there are, you know, I don't think it's always the case, should we say? No, absolutely not. And that's why it's always a surprise that's why I think everybody loves film. They're not quite mm. sure what's going to happen. And, and it's so crazy to take a, it take a drubbing. You know, you spend so many millions. It's like, wait a minute. And, well, here's the thing. Instant feedback. It's like this music video I just did that I'm watching. It, that I'm like, it's amazing. It's instant feedback. I hate this. I like this. Mm. Why do this? Why did they do that? And at least when I, when I was a kid, it was a little safer. It would take a while for them to type some, actually type a review. Yeah. And there maybe half a dozen reviews, or maybe a dozen reviews, or three reviews. Now, it's that instant dismissal, mm. which is very startling. That instant, uh, not a lot of, well, not everyone, but it seems to be um, in a lot of cases. Like I like this, I like that. And why did he do that? Without without such, that's why it's good to have the good uh, critics or the good reviewers, yeah. people writing about it saying, now, wait a minute, like your attitude as well just now, doesn't matter the money, let's have a look at how they touch the people. I just wanted to jump into actually, because you did work with one of the biggest, well, and he's having a, he's having a moment himself, um, Keanu Reeves, I believe you played yes. his stepdad in Destination Wedding. 
Um, and just full disclosure here, I tried twice to actually get into a screening of this film, but I was uh, I was out of luck, unfortunately. So I haven't seen the oh. film, but I have seen the trailer. It was amazing, and it was another surprise. It was shooting up in um, San Luis Obispo, which is a couple hundred miles up from L.A. I had self-submitted, and then I didn't hear anything, and then I heard something, and I went out for the interview. And the interview was with, I think his last name was Putnam, and the director's name, Victor Levin. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it then. Well, I had Googled, but Victor Levin had had directed episodes of Mad Men, uh, he directed a lot of Mad About You a while back, and he'd done some other films. It was just this interview. I did an audition, and what the story was is that the only people with lines are the two leads, which is who are Keanu and Winona Ryder. Mm-hmm. Everyone, no one else has lines in the film, which is intrigues me. I love MOS because you know you don't have to memorize. You know, <laughs> I love, I really do. Yeah. Uh, to, I took an MOS briefly class at AFI years ago, and just happened to be there where they had they they edit inside the camera and so they take you get only one take and it, it right. and it's it's about a 5 minute exercise but the real acting if you don't need if you don't need lines don't use them you know right. uh, it, because if the actor can convey exactly what you need so this was great i didn't hear anything and i thought oh well there's that but then i get a call and says we'd like to have you and so it was 5 days it's a set of uh, the two Keanu and Winona play wedding guests it's called destination wedding and they even on the plane and they first meet they hate each other mm-hmm. they just they, they don't know it and they're vile guests and, and i'm not that's not my word that's the words that they use and they just go on and on cutting everybody down and, and hating being there mm-hmm. and so his stepfather i i was there with my new wife and his mother so mm-hmm. i had been divorced as we got onto the um set they were talking about us so you'd see us and them talking about us. But what was really terrific was Keanu's awesome. And we got to improvise together. Um, oh, wow. we, we didn't use those in the film. Those are not in the film. But we improvised. And he said, and he approached me, Dad, and, and I'm, we're one-on-one just acting together. And, yeah. he, and he's the kind of guy who... He's giving water out the background. He's, yeah. he's a new, he became just a hero because, of course, we've all run into people who are kind of jerks. You go back to the ones like, well, you know, Keanu wasn't a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why are you being a... But he was really terrific to work with. And then what happened was this. The way it worked out, I was in three scenes. I was, I think, and because they only had lines and I'm in three of the scenes. Mm-hmm. Because of marketing, it's really interesting. It's um, Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder, Greg Lucy. So I'm very happy yeah. about that. But I also know that I know that I didn't have lines per se. But there we right. were acting together. Right. And and what's um, yeah. So it was a really valuable experience to me. And and as a side note, they were reshoots. I got a call six weeks later. I said, Oh, we have yeah. to reshoot that scene. And I said, But my hair is military style now. Uh, you know, I had cut my hair for a different project. Yeah. And I said, which scene? And they told me it was the opening scene that where we appear at the wedding that for the first time, my character, the stepfather. I said, it's possible I could wear a hat in this right. scene because I would have taken it off for the wedding scene. So this guy worked with me, Victor Levin, what a guy. He says, yeah, you're right. He says, and he was very kind. He said, we can't expect you to look exactly the same six weeks later. Yeah. So sure enough, on set, this is you know, I had short hair, and so they worked with me to try to get it looking longer. Yeah. And he said, I'll talk to the editor. And the editor had me, I had two hats. We'd do the scene one way without the hat, mm-hmm. and we'd do the scene absolutely uh, immediately again with the hat. So they were able to decide later. But Keanu is great, and um, I think all the stories you hear about him are probably true. Uh, he's, um, he's just a really wonderful guy to work with. Is there something, and I don't want to say, uh, was it the it or the, the movie star factor, but I'm just like curious about what it is to act next to somebody that um, for, that well-known. For me, that goes out the window. Right. Because it's at the moment, it's just you, your character and his. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would say. That's, that's the moment. What it does do is sort of affirms that, okay, this isn't, this can't be an issue because we're just relating to each other. Right. I've been in similar situations several years ago. It was a, I'm not 
likely to Google who I'm going to work with. And this was a gentleman, Richard Portnoff from The Sopranos, and I recognized him immediately. But mm-hmm. we ran the scene and we did what we did. And he was great. He said, that was great. Thank you. And and so if you can, you drop all that. I haven't run into, I think some of the music video people might uh, be slightly different. Mm. But you just drop it because it's best for both of you. And it also shows that that doesn't matter. It's what's right. got to matter is how you're relating as actors. So it's a good, um, good question. Unless that other person with a, cele- a little bit more of a celebrity status brings mm. something, you have to pay attention because they're probably bankrolling it. <laughs> so, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the hardest yeah. thing because sometimes you have to really adapt to what's going on. And I also think a lot of times, you know, especially if you're number one on the call sheet and you're shouldering this like huge production, there's an awful lot of, um, I guess, expectation stress in your shoulders. But what's really nice, I guess, about, you know, people like Keanu Reeves, I'm assuming, is that they can look beyond that and actually realize that they're at the, the top and it's their job to actually make everybody else around well, any- them sort of comfortable. And- Thank you for saying that, because I was on a production, well, it's not the only one, but it's just so such a drag when the negative energy gets tossed in because it just creates these hurdles for everybody. Mm. My first time on a set was a Coppola set, which was Peggy Sue who got married. It was just a, a bunch of, um, but it was eight days on a set, so it was really kind of intriguing. But around that time, I got a call for a Brian De Palma movie, and I'm like, that was new to me. I never, you know, that was like, holy shit. That's a so, holy shit moment. <laughs> yeah, so I, that was... Yeah, that was my first holy shit moment. So I went down to San Jose. A gentleman came along and explained the scene. It was a a scene where I played the hotel, the motel owner, and I'm trying to tell someone to move their truck. They won't. They don't understand English. And so I have to do it every way I can possibly do it without words to say, don't park there. Don't park your truck there. Yeah. And he explained that it was part of the scene. I don't know if you remember Untouchables. Mm-hmm. Where the baby, yeah. bug, the baby buggy bounces down the stairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those where he keeps cutting, which was a style, his style at the time, mm. or part of the style. Where is the baby going to crash before the gunfight? You know, in the middle yeah. of the gunfight. So it's one of those. I'm like, great. So he said, okay, you understand? I think, yeah, I think I do. And it was between me and this other guy only. And I, so they'd called in two people, and it was myself and somebody else. And he says, okay, someone will buy, be by to read for you in about. 10 minutes. I said, okay. Well, someone comes by to read for me, and it's Brian De Palma with me, and it's Brian De Palma. Yeah. So we go in the closed room, and he says, and he explains the scene again, and he's playing the guy who can't speak English. And he's like, you know, and I'm coming up with as many improvs as I can to yeah. try to get him to not park there. And he's, he's, yeah. finally, I just could not think of anything left. Yeah. Today. So I walked up to him and I had my right hand and right hand and I put it in front of his face. Yeah. And I one of these back and forth motions and I said, Is anything getting through in there? Is anything getting through in there? And he cracked up. <laughs> and so I'm like, Yeah. Turns out I did not get the part, but I made him laugh and mm. I can see that. Um yeah. something. I think also, well, I'm sort of reminded when I hear sort of stories and anecdotes like that, you know, it's just those sort of like moments, like, I guess, like maybe getting the part is like, that's the, that's the great thing to sort of have, but it's also just being, you know, being there, being with these very illustrious sort of filmmakers and having these sort of like moments with them that nobody else will have, like, that's very sort of special to you. How many people would have wanted to be there with Keanu, you know, playing his stepdad? And it's like, you can't. Mm. I can't take that for granted. How many people mm. would love to have that audition with the How many people? Yeah. If I start, and it happens, if you start to get a little cynical, this, that, and the other, you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. There are all these other people who would love to have that moment. Mm. So figure it out, you know, appreciate yeah. it. I think gratitude comes into it. I, you know, I, we all get in moods. We all go a little crazy. It's like coming back to the, so many people have it have it differently and worse mm. so take a deep breath even that isn't easy to say and there's room for everyone mm. it's so, so crazy you can have um you have artists who are filmmakers or filmmakers who are artists you have filmmakers who 
who may not be what you consider artists, but they're making mm-hmm. great films. It, it's just such a different – the people you're interviewing, not myself here really, but the filmmakers, you're, you're watching them at a moment where in a few years you're going to see what they're up to again. Yeah. You know, and and your that platform you're providing is huge to them. So there you have it. I had a great time chatting with Greg. Please do like and subscribe to the show on SoundCloud and YouTube and drop a comment or two. And you can get in touch with me at the Salmoning01 on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Tom and I'll catch up with you next episode.